This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.ChristChurchSouthPhilly.org. So if you have a Bible with you, please open it to the book of Judges, chapter 16. If you need a Bible, you can shoot your hand up in the air. We have people in the back who'd be happy to get a copy of the Bible into your hands this morning. If you're new with us, we've been in a series in Judges. This is typically what we do here at Christ Church. We pick one book of the Bible and make our way through it systematically. This morning, we're picking up in Judges, chapter 16. As you make your way there, I want to tell you a true story that took place on the morning of January 28th, 1986. It was an exciting morning in Cape Canaveral, Florida, because this was the morning for the first time ever where a civilian would be taken into space. Up to this point, astronauts had flown a lot of missions, but on this morning, a school teacher would go and would be the first civilian to be able to see Earth from the stars. The space shuttle chosen for this historic journey was the Challenger. It had been in operation for several years and had successfully made 10 trips to outer space already. But on this morning, 73 seconds after taking off, Space Shuttle Challenger exploded, tragically taking the life of everyone on board. After several months of combing through the wreckage of this 230-pound spaceship that was 122 feet long, it was discovered that what led to the destruction of this massive vessel was the failure of one of the O-rings in its rocket boosters. An O-ring that was not more than one inch long. You see, no matter how powerful something is, it is only ever as strong as its weakest part. This morning we are going to see the final chapter of Samson's life. We met him several weeks ago in chapter 14. And we have seen that he is someone whom God gave tremendous strength. He killed a lion with his bare hands. He took on a thousand soldiers with only a jawbone of a donkey as his weapon. And he won and came out on top. There is no one in the entire Bible who has more strength than Samson. And yet for all his strength, he had a weakness that would lead to his undoing. This man who could not be defeated by his enemies was eventually defeated by himself. If you've ever felt sometimes like you just can't get out of your own way. If you've ever felt sometimes like you can be your own worst enemy. Into that struggle, God has something powerful to say to us through the story of Samson. I have entitled this morning's sermon, Ruin and Redemption. Ruin and redemption. And I want us to look at this final chapter of Samson's life in two parts. Part one takes place in verses 1 through 22. And we're going to see the ruin of a strong man made weak. But then the story picks up in in verses 23 through 31. And we see the redemption of a weak man made strong. I'm going to read the first 22 verses up front. I'll spend most of our time this morning talking about them. And then I'll read verses 23 through 31, and we'll finish 
there. So just so you know, the first part will be longer. So when we get to the second part, don't be worried. We are actually getting close to, to the end. But before we read God's word, let's, let's just posture our hearts before the Lord for what we're about to hear. And so let's all bow our heads. And I want to encourage you to have a private time of prayer between you and God right now. Just asking him to speak to you through the preaching of his word. And now please, please uh, pray also for me, that I be strengthened by God to speak in a way that's helpful to you and glorifying to him. God, we are here before you, and this is a sacred moment. Because we are about to be addressed by you through the words that you inspired to be written. And so God, I just ask you now to send your Holy Spirit upon us. The same Spirit that inspired these words. May he now illuminate them to our hearts. We cannot see without you. We cannot hear without you. So God, would you open our eyes and open our hearts as we humble ourselves before you asking for your help would you move in us today god i pray for the good of our souls and the glory of your name we praise in the mighty name of jesus amen amen let's read together judges chapter 16 verses 1 through 22 Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. The Gazites were told, Samson has come here, and they surround the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, let us wait till the light of the morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts, and he pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that's in front of Hebron. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him and see where his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. And we will give each you of you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies. And how you might be bound that one could subdue you. Samson said to her, If they buy me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dry, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush and in her chamber, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you've mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And Samson said to her, If they buy me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in an inner chamber. But he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, if you weave the seven locks on my head with a web and fasten it tight with a pin, 
Then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web. And she made them tight with the pin and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pin, the loom, and the web. She said to him, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent him. She sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her, to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. The Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground the mill in the prison. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Praise God for his holy word. In these first three verses, we see Samson once again engaging in sexual promiscuity. He, he, he is no hero, friends. Let's be clear about this. This is, a, this is a man who's driven solely by his lusts and his wants. His enemies show up to take him out. They're waiting for him at the gate. What he does is he uses his strength to take down the city gate, to bust it up, pulling it up from the post, to carry it on his shoulder and just walk away. And his enemies decide not to engage him because when you see someone pull up a city gate in front of you, you're probably thinking, that's not someone I want to mess with. And so he walks away to safety. This is another act of tremendous strength, but then everything begins to fall apart in verse 4. Verse 4, we see that Samson's in the valley of Sorek. Sorek is a strip of land that existed between the land of Israel and the land of the Philistines. As we've seen throughout the story, the Philistines are people who had been oppressing and enslaving and brutalizing the Israelite people for over 40 years. God had told Samson's parents, I'm going to give you a son, and I'm going to make him so strong that he's going to be able to fight and bring you freedom. Samson had been born to take these enemies on. And so if he's here at the border between Israel and the Philistines, he should have been there for one reason and one reason only, and that is to lead God's people into battle and victory. That's not why he is there. He's there because he's fallen in love with Delilah, a Philistine woman. Friends, we cannot overemphasize What a betrayal this is. This is Samson, once again, turning his back on his people and their suffering and sleeping with their oppressors. The one who is supposed to be their savior is once again showing that he is actually a traitor. He is no hero. 
but he's in love. And the word here for love in the Hebrew means to, to have a deep affection. This is not, in verse 4, what we're seeing, this is not Samson being unable to control his lust. This is not him having a one-night stand with a prostitute like verse 1. No, this is actually, by the author here, being set up in contrast with that. This is totally different than what's happening in verse 1. This is a deep affection. This is a woman that Samson genuinely cares about. Samson really loves Delilah. But just because his love was real does not mean his love was right. See, we can have this idea that as long as it makes me happy, it must be okay. As if happiness is the ultimate good. But friends, happiness is not the ultimate good according to Scripture. God's actually made us for something so much more. More than being happy, God made us to be holy. To be holy means to be set apart. This is what we were created for. God has set humanity apart from everything else in all of creation to have a special and unique relationship with him. Because unlike anything else in all of creation, it's only humanity, only male and female, who have been made in the image of God. What does an image do? If you take a picture of someone and you have their image, what do you have? Well, it's not them, but it's a reflection of them. It's something that bears their likeness. Friends, we were made by God to bear his likeness by being a reflection of the beautiful nature of who he is in his moral character. Our highest sense of self is not what happens when we start living for ourselves, but instead when we live for him. When we live in obedience to who he says we are to be, our highest sense of self comes when we embrace that we are the moon and he is the sun and we are made to reflect the light of his glory. Our love is meant to be shaped and informed by what he says it means to love. Our compassion is meant to reflect his compassion. Our purity is meant to reflect his purity. Our desire for justice is meant to express his incorruptible character of justice. Everything about our lives, friends, is meant to be controlled by one thing, and that is desiring to see God honored and glorified through us obeying his commands, not so that we look great, but so that we can reflect the greatness of who he is. That's what it means to pursue a holy life. That's the life that we are made for. And so that's why happiness is great, but happiness will never ultimately be satisfying. It will always fade. The vacation always comes to an end. There's the happiness of Christmas Day and then the annoying day of Christmas trash pickup day. (laughs) Even in our friendships, even in our marriages, there, there are moments of tremendous happiness, but there can also be conflict, which is why any relationship that's based on the pursuit of happiness is actually a very fragile relationship because happiness comes and goes. But when we see that our purpose is holiness, when we see that we are made by God to find our highest value in living to honor him, then we have a purpose that's not fragile because it's not based on a passing feeling. But whether sad or happy, whether at peace or really worried, in all circumstances, in all emotions, we can pursue being the holy person that God's created us to be that is pleasing to him. But what we see happening here is that Samson is pursuing his happiness at the expense of his holiness. What he wants is in contradiction 
with the moral character to which God had called him to live. And he decides that his desire for Delilah is more important than his devotion to God. So here's what we see happening, friends. Ultimately, what is going on in Samson's life is that he's living as if his wants are more important than God's will. Samson is defining life on his terms. Samson is believing that what he thinks is best is better than what God says is best. Samson is not trusting God, but instead putting all his trust in himself. In other words, Samson, he's all caught up in his pride. That's Samson's ultimate issue. Samson's ultimate issue is not these Philistine women that he keeps going after, but it's his pride that makes him think that he can keep on living however he wants. Friends, that's not just a Samson thing. That's a human thing. Ever since the dawn of time when Adam and Eve chose to eat the fruit that God had forbidden, humanity has been cursed with this idea that we know better than God about what is good for us. If you want to see how this works, just spend an afternoon with a toddler. A toddler is totally convinced that they know what is best for them, and the adults have no clue about what's going on. And so if they want to lick an electrical outlet, they know, in their vast years of experience, they know that licking that electrical outlet is the secret to unlocking the joy of life. And once they taste it, not only will they be happy, but they will discover who they truly are. They they are not just someone who desires to lick outlets. They are, by their nature, outlet lickers. And they must not be denied licking these outlets because this is their highest sense of self. And if you get in their way, and if you do not affirm them, you are now doing violence against them. And they'll have no problem telling you, through their vocal cords, the violence that you are doing. And it's a good thing that they're small, because if not, the murder rate would go way up, and they would take us out. (laughs) How dare we not affirm them in what they want? How dare we think that we know better? What are our decades of life compared to their 20 months? And we laugh at that. It's easy to laugh about the foolishness of that kind of pride. But friends, doesn't that express how our heart can be towards God? There's what we want and what God says. And when what we want goes against what, what, we want goes against what God says, so often our default thinking can be, Well, maybe I actually know better. And yet the reality is, the difference between a toddler's knowledge and our knowledge is nothing in comparison to God's knowledge and our knowledge. I mean, if there's a God who made the world, who holds the stars in space and knows them all by name, who has always been and is everywhere present, in other words, if the God of the Bible is the actual one true God... How do we compare his knowing everything from all time and our very, very limited experience of knowledge? There's no comparison. And yet our pride still tells us, you know better and you should be free to do what you want. Our pride tells us, I know that happy moment faded, but this next happy thing, this is what you've really been looking for. 
You see, pride, it's, it's so seductive because not only is it intellectual, thinking that we know better, it actually gets at us through our hearts and our desires. We don't just think we know better. We feel that we do. I think Pastor Tim Keller says it well when he says this, what the heart most wants, the mind finds reasonable, the emotions find valuable, and the will finds doable. Here's what he's saying. We can justify intellectually anything that we want emotionally. Samson pursues this love affair with Delilah because he was feeling it. And it's Samson's pride that justifies his sinful desires for Delilah and it opens up the door for him ultimately to be taken out. The Philistines bribe Delilah to figure out Samson's secret. And so she asks him, what, what makes you strong? He jokes around with her and says, hey, if you take seven bowstrings and tie me up with them, I'll become really, really weak. He wakes up the next day and guess what had happened to him? He snaps those off, goes out to feed them because that's not the secret of his strength. She complains, hey, you're making a fool of me. What is your secret of your strength? And he goes, okay, if you tie me up with new ropes. And so she ties him up with new ropes, and he snaps them off again. And she's like, you're making a mockery of me. Now, friends, here's what we need to be clear. Samson knows what's going on. Like, it's not like he's like, oh, man, you know, I told Delilah this is what made me weak. And the next morning it happened. What, you know, how, how did they know? Like, he's not, he might be dumb, but he's not an idiot. Like, he knows what's happening. He knows that she's obviously trying to tell these people the secret of his strength. He gets that, but he's not worried. Why? Because he keeps on being strong. And so I think actually in some ways he, he, he starts to think, what can I get out of this? And so he's like, hey, maybe I can get a new haircut, you know? Like, 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 like my old dude's getting a little, little shaggy. I know. I want some braids. And so he tells her, hey, if you braid my hair, then I will become weak. And so, he, you know, he goes to sleep. He wakes up. He's got, you know... Cornrows, like 2001, Allen Iverson. And, uh, and he goes out and defeats his enemies yet again because that was not the secret of his strength. But now he looks fresh, and so he's probably feeling good about himself. Delilah is upset at Samson. And so in verse 15, she really turns it up and says, you don't love me. Your heart is not with me. I think it would be very easy for Samson to say back, you clearly don't love me. But that's not what he does. Now, this time he actually tells her that he had been a Nazarite from the womb. If you remember, when God came to Samson's parents, he said that he must be a Nazarite from the womb, and so even Samson's mother had to live underneath what's known as a Nazarite vow, so that way from the first days of Samson's life in her womb, he'd be a person who would be a Nazarite. A Nazarite was someone who lived under a specific vow, we see this vow in Numbers chapter 6. It's a vow that shows that when you're living this type of way, you're living for a specific holy purpose. The vow had three stipulations. You cannot um, drink any alcohol. You cannot touch anything that's dead. And you cannot cut your hair. Now, if you've been tracking Samson's story with us so far, we saw that back in chapter 14, Samson has not been living as a Nazarite for a very long time. I mean, the first thing we see him do when he becomes an adult in chapter 14 is go down into wine country and begin to enjoy some adult beverages. He then gets married and throws a kegger. And so he's been breaking this vow of not drinking alcohol for a long time. Not only that, but then he does kill this lion. 
and then after its rotting corpse is there for a few days, uh, some bees come and make a honeycomb in it. He comes back, he sees the honey that's in there, and decides, oh, I want some of that. So he goes and he touches the dead lion to get what he wants. He, he touched dead things as well. And so actually, if you read chapter 14, you'll see in the first nine verses of Samson's life, he's already broken two out of the three parts of his vow. He's not a man who has been living as a Nazarite, which is why he actually felt it was safe to tell the secret of his strength to Delilah. He doesn't think it's going to do anything to him. He doesn't think her cutting her hair, his hair is, is, going, to, is, going, to, is going to matter to him. And it's very clear about this. I mean, look again at verse 19 and verse 20. It says, she made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Pause there real quick. But if you're sleeping so soundly that someone can shave your head without you waking up, I just want to say, probably good chance Samson got drunk again. <laughs> um, breaking his vow one more time. And she called a man, had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep, and watch. I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. She cuts off his hair and he wakes up. Let's be clear. He knows his hair is gone. Like you've ever had a full of hair and then gotten a buzz cut? You know that feels way different. Right? So he wakes up and he feels the coolness of the air on his head. But he doesn't think that anything has changed. He thinks to himself, I'm going to go out and just defeat them like I always have. He had told her about his vow, but he didn't think it meant anything because he'd been breaking his vows and getting away with it his whole life. And so he says, hey, I've got a haircut, but that doesn't matter at all. I'm going to go out, and I'm going to be strong just like I always have been. This time his strength had left him, and it was not because his hair was gone. Friends, we just need to understand this. If Samson's strength came through him keeping his vows, he would have lost his strength back in chapter 14, verse 1. Why is Samson's strength finally gone? Verse 20 tells us that the Lord had left him. See, friends, here's what we need to understand. Samson's strength was never Samson's strength. It was always the Lord who had been giving him strength. But Samson had become so proud that he thought that he was doing these feats of strength by himself. You see, pride seduces us into believing that we know better than God, that our feelings are king. And pride deceives us into thinking that we are strong in and of ourselves and we don't need God. In other words, pride is the sin of acting, thinking, believing, and living as if we are the gods of our own lives. So I think author C.S. Lewis is absolutely right when he writes this. The central vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. See, what Lewis is saying, and I think the Bible absolutely bears this out, is that every sin is ultimately a derivative of this root sin of pride. It's an anti-God thinking it's an anti-God state of mind. It's when we think that we can be in the place that only God is meant to occupy. And so when we get angry, why are we getting angry? Because I have a right to blow up on anyone because I'm God and no one dare cross me. When I'm feeling greedy, why am I greedy? Because I deserve more and I'm entitled. 
when I'm lying, why am I lying? Because I can manipulate the truth. The truth is whatever I make it because I'm the king of the universe. We're engaging in lust. What's going on there? I can take what I want, when I want it, and no one else can tell me different. Engaging in selfishness. I deserve this because it's my world and everyone else is just living in it. Engaging in self-righteousness. What's wrong with all these other people and why can't they be more godly like me? Every sin is ultimately a derivative of this root sin, the sin of pride, the sin of putting ourselves in the place of God, which is why God says in his word that he will never let pride stand. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 16. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 12. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. James chapter 4, verse 6. God opposes the proud. Friends, God will never let pride stand because ultimately pride is rebellion against him. It was Samson's pride that led to his ruin because that's the destination that pride will always deliver us to. He's imprisoned. He has his eyes gouged out, which is ironic because in chapter 14, what kept getting repeated in that chapter, Samson was doing what was right in his own eyes. It's another way of saying his pride. Meant to see this is his pride is his undoing. The sin of pride is what led to the ruin of the strong man made weak. And he's so ruined that in verse 22, it says that in prison his hair started to grow back. That, that's not a sign that his strength might return because, again, his strength didn't come from his hair. But it is a sign that the Philistines thought he was no longer a threat. Like, they thought the strength was in his hair because when they cut it off, that's when he became weak. Yet when they saw his hair starting to grow back, they're not afraid. It's not like they're going down into prison and being like, hey, we got to keep giving him haircuts so that way he doesn't get strong again. No, the Philistines thought that Samson was so ruined because not only had, had he been defeated by them, it, they assumed he had also been discarded by his God. That's how low, that's how ruined Samson has become. What the Philistines didn't know is that Samson's God is a God who loves to bring redemption out of ruin. So let's look at the second part of this, the redemption of a weak man made strong. Verse 23, now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon their God and to rejoice. They said, our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. When the people saw him, they praised their God. They said, our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O oh Lord God, please, Remember me. And please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. 
And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested. And he leaned his weight against him, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed down with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the peoples who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtelol in the tomb of Noah, his father. He had judged Israel for 20 years. This section starts by showing us what Samson's story has really been about this whole time. The story of Samson and the Philistines has never ultimately been about just Samson and the Philistines. Ultimately, it's about what's been taking place in the Israelite people. All the way back in chapter 13, the Israelites had started worshiping the false god of the Philistines, this god named Dagon. And as a result of their rejecting their one true god and worshiping this Philistine god, God had allowed them to become enslaved to the Philistines. Because sometimes the only way for us to see how wrong we are is to experience the consequences of our choices. Sometimes God loves us so much that he allows us to feel the sting of our sin so that our eyes might be open to see our need for him. But the start of this section actually seems as though this false god Dagon has won. Verse 23 says that the rulers of the Philistines assembled to proclaim that our God has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. Right? All the bigwigs of the Philistine people are, are present in this place. And not just them, but it says that even up in like the overflow room, even in the spectator stands, there's over 3,000 men and women. Like This is the whole nation of Israel turning up, turning up to the temple of their false god. Right? Dagon's the idol is in this place. They're there worshiping him as they are mocking Samson. It seems as though Samson has lost, which is representation to show us that it seems as though God has lost. But this conflict that's taking place ultimately on a spiritual level between God and Dagon, the true God and the false God, what we see is that ultimately God triumphs. Because Samson asked to be put where he can feel the pillars that support this false god's temple. Under the roof, again, held up by these pillars are most of the Philistine people and the statue of their god. And when Samson feels those cold pillars, blind, broken, weak Samson prays for strength once more. Now, always before, we have seen that Samson assumed that he would have strength. He's actually never prayed for strength before. He's always just assumed that he would be strong because, again, in his pride, he thought that his strength was his strength. But now, for the first time, in the humble place of his brokenness, when he has been humbled down to the dust, he does not assume that he has strength, but rather asks God to give him strength. Now, some commentators have argued that this request of verse 28 is actually just a eventual one. It's true that there is no mention here of rescuing Israel. There's only the mention of revenge for Samson's eyes, so that is true. But we need to understand, friends, this is a different Samson. There is a newfound humility here. We see that in a couple ways. First, we can see it by just how Samson talks to God. We can see it the fact that Samson is, for the first time, actually talking to God. Never done this before in his life. But Samson begins to address God. First, 
He calls him, you see that word Lord in all capitals? Verse 28. That's God's personal name, Yahweh. That's the name that God uses when he speaks about his personal promises that he's made to be true to his people. And so Samson calling God Yahweh is Samson placing his trust in God and in his promises. He then moves on and says, Lord. The word Lord there is the word Adonai, which means sovereign or ruler. Samson is declaring for the first time in his life that God is the ruler over his life. He then moves on to call him Elohim, which is the name of God as creator. Not just creator as an impersonal force, but the creator who knows, loves, and sustains his creation. And so here in this prayer, we see Samson finally acknowledging the truth of who the real God is. And then how he relates to God shows that he's had a tremendous change of heart. First, he asks, would you remember me? Oh, friends, this is a humble ask for God to be merciful to him. Samson knows that because of his sin, God has every right to write him off. Samson knows that because of his pride, he has every right for God to forget about him. But he's calling upon God in his merciful nature. And he's saying, God, not because of who I am, but because of who you are. He doesn't appeal to himself. He doesn't appeal to anything in his character. He says, just remember me. Calling upon God and the mercy of who God is. And then second, he says, remember me and strengthen me just once more. Friends, here at last, Samson is acknowledging his dependence upon God. Samson had lived his whole life as if his strength was his to do with as he pleased. But as he's been weakened, now he finally knows where true strength lies. It lies in the Lord. And so he asks God, God, would you strengthen me? And so friends, while this prayer is certainly not all that it should be, he, he probably shouldn't have mentioned or cared about getting vengeance for his eyes. His prayer is not all that it should be. But it is very different from anything that Samson used to be. In his brokenness, in his having been humbled down to the lowest of his lows, Samson is finally learning what it means to have faith. Which is why in Hebrews chapter 11, which is a book in the New Testament that talks about all these different characters of faith. It gives different examples of Old Testament people who God commends as people of faith. Samson's name is mentioned. Samson's mentioned not because he was always a faithful man. No, you can make the argument that except until this last moment, he had been an unfaithful man. Samson's mentioned not because he's a faithful man, but because here, finally at the end, he's learning what it means to have faith. True faith is not a confidence in ourselves, but a humble dependence upon God. True faith is turning from ourselves. It's emptying ourselves of ourselves. And it's in our desperation crying out to God and saying, God, I need you. See, true faith is knowing that we can't, but he can. True faith is knowing that God does not ask us to be strong, but to trust that he is strong. True faith is knowing and trusting that it is in the place of our brokenness that God meets us with the strength of his grace. You see, Samson humbles himself before the Lord. And as he does, oh, the Lord does give him strength one more 
time and the deliverance that Samson had never been able to bring during his life, he's finally able to bring through his death as he pushes down those pillars. And that temple collapses upon Israel's enemies, showing the powerlessness of their false god Dagon because he could do nothing to save them. And the Philistine people are wiped out. They're never mentioned again. Because Samson had finally done what the Lord had created him to do. You see, the story of Samson is not just about the ruin of a strong man made to be weak. It's ultimately about the redemption of a weak man who is made to be strong. And friends, in that we see that this is not just Samson's story. Friends, this is right at the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus, like Samson, was also handed over to Gentile oppressors. Jesus, like Samson, was also tortured and chained and put on a public display to be mocked. Jesus, like Samson, also died with his arms outstretched, not between two pillars, but outstretched on the cross. Jesus, like Samson, through his death, has defeated God's enemies. Colossians 2.15 says that through the cross of Jesus Christ, he's brought the power of Satan to nothing. He has completely disarmed him. How does the cross do that? (laughs) Because the cross took away the penalty for our sin, which is death. The cross took that away as Jesus died our death in our place. So now Satan can no longer successfully prosecute God's people. You see, because of what Jesus has done, now when Satan accuses us of our sin and says, God, hey God, they deserve death for that, God can say, yes they do. And the death of my son is more than enough to cover their life of sin. Friends, the death of Jesus takes away Satan's power to prosecute us. And it breaks sin's power to rule over us. We can now, through faith in Jesus, turn away from the sinful idols of our hearts, the false gods that we can so often chase after in our pride. We can, through the strength of Christ, not our own strength, But his strength, we can through the strength of Christ actually live in obedience to God. Because there's actually a crucial difference between Samson and between Jesus. Their death, in their death there are so many foreshadowings, so many similarities. When Samson died, he was buried and his story is over in verse 31. When Jesus died... And Jesus was buried. In many ways, his story was just getting started. Because three days later, he rose from the grave to prove that he did not come to be a dead martyr, but a living Savior, who right now in this very moment is ruling and reigning on high. And what that means for us is he's interceding for us. He is praying before the Father that we be strengthened with his power, that we would make it through this life. And so, friends, because Jesus didn't just die, but because he rose again, we get to live through faith in him every single day in the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Listen, Christian, you might feel weak, but don't for a moment mean, think that means that you are powerless. No, in Christ, you live a resurrected life. Sin no longer has the right to have dominion over you. When your sin wants to tempt you and tell you that you just cannot break this, that you can't get free of this, that you can't do it, on the one hand, it's right. You can't, but he can. And because he lives, he can do it in you. Friends, being a Christian means so much more than just looking back and believing on what Jesus has done. Oh, that's great, and that's beautiful, and we do it. But the cross is not a memorial where we link back in our mind and just remember with fond memories someone who died for us. No, the cross is something that points us forward to the living hope of Jesus and who he is for us today because the cross is empty, and Jesus has won. And so, friends, because he did not just die, but because he lives forevermore, we can do what Paul tells us to do in Ephesians chapter 6. And that is be strengthened with the strength that comes from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so what does this look like? Well, I'll just share what this looks like a little bit in my life. When my last nerve is being hit, a nerve I didn't even know I had. My temptation is to respond in anger. Into that moment, I can say, God, I can't. But you can. Strengthen me with the patience of Jesus Christ. When someone is being unkind to me and unjustly accusing me, and I want to respond by striking back, I don't have to. But in that very real moment, I can say, God, I can't. But you can. Strengthen me to be forgiving as I've been forgiven by Jesus. When I'm exhausted and overwhelmed and just don't know how to face another day, God, I can't, but you can. You can strengthen me to keep moving forward as undeterred as Jesus was when he went to the cross. Friends, when there's a pile of dishes, and it's been a long day, and I just can't, the power of Jesus Christ can meet me in that moment. And the same power that raised him from the dead can raise my arms to scrub some dishes. And that might seem like a silly and small example. But friends, this is how much I need Christ. I need him to do the dishes. And it is in that place, it is in the place of our acute awareness of our weakness and dependency that God meets us with his sufficiency and strength. You see, friend, the true secret to strength is that it does not come through us trying to be strong and do better. No, the true secret to strength comes through us humbling ourselves and learning more and more what it means to be dependent on the Lord. So as we come to a close, just by way of application, I want to ask you to consider two questions. Two questions. First, where are the places in your life right now where you're trying to do it in your own strength? Where are the places in your right, life right now where you're trying to be strong? I think God wants to give you an invitation today to admit that you can't 
but he can. And God wants to give you an invitation today to come to the end of yourself so you can experience him meet you there. Where are you trying to be strong? In that place, admit your need for him. And then second, where do you feel weak? Where are you so aware that you are so very weak? Friends, it's in that place that God wants to meet you and not leave you, but give you a strength you can never experience by yourself. And so friends, may the lesson that Samson learned at the end of his life, may that be a lesson that we learn now. True strength does not come through us being strong, but from us being dependent on the Lord. Moment by moment, dependent on the one who is greater than ourselves. The one who has conquered sin, Satan, and death. The one who died and rose and lives forevermore. Dependent on our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Christ Church, we have a great need for Jesus, as we say so often. And by the grace of God, we have a great Jesus for our need. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer.